Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling of dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. Belper, 1844. While at university, I used to work in a small independent bookshop. It's long gone now, replaced by a craft ale store. Incidentally, it doesn't call itself a craft ale store. Rather pompously, it describes itself as a draft apothecary dispensing craft brews. But I digress. The bookshop had an absolutely incredible range of stock. Popular fiction sat next to obscure poetry. Memoirs of inconsequential TV stars nestled between slim volumes of out-of-print contemporary classics and beautiful photographic catalogues of antique Spanish ceramics. One section, which dominated a whole wall of the shop, was crime fiction. A character all too familiar with those who spent more time and money than most in that section would see a grizzled detective, a country vicar or a maiden aunt attempting to conclude whether a sudden death was a murder, or, in the case where it was, who was responsible. In Belper, on the southern tip of the Peak District, on Monday the 22nd of April, 1844, two deaths took place in the most violent of circumstances. There was no need for an investigation, though. No need for police to take any further action. No need for a jury to sit in judgment of the accused. The whole terrible scene played out before the eyes of a young boy whose chilling retelling of what he saw left everyone who heard it in no doubt as to the enormity of what occurred and at whose hand blood had been shed. Belper is eight miles north of Derby. The local football team, Belper Town, is affectionately known as the Nailers, a reference to the nail-making heritage of the town. The local availability of ironstone, charcoal and coal in the area provided metal workers with valuable raw materials and Belper became a global centre for nail-making up until the Industrial Revolution. As early as 1314, Two forges were established in the town, producing iron for chapel windows, nails and spikes. By the mid-18th century, with a population of less than 1,800 people, 1,400 owed their living to the manufacturing of nails. This period, however, saw the start of the decline of nailing as employment. Industrial innovations made the cottage industry-scale manufacturing Belper inefficient and unprofitable. Fortunately, though, Belp had its new future not only primed, but fuelled and ready to perform a vital role in the making of the modern world. Utilising the awesome power of the River Derwent, alongside Richard Arkwright in Cromford, Derby industrialist Dedediah Strutt developed the world's first water-powered cotton mill. 
opening in Belper in 1776, this is acknowledged by many as being the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. An era where nature and human ingenuity were married to shift the production of goods from small-scale domestic settings to purpose-built technologically-assisted factories. The first Belper mill was followed by a series of others, and by the death of Jedediah in 1797, his three sons, William, George and Joseph, continued the running of it. The family built model factory settlements in Belper and Milford, and were the industrial paternalists who provided housing, food, schools and of course churches for their workers. One such worker was millwright William Yeomans. By 1844, the 50-year-old father of four lived with his wife and three youngest children in Birkins Court, a cluster of dwellings, workshops and foundries on Bridge Street in the centre of town. The yeoman's strut-tithed home were a set of rooms on Lion Terrace, part of Birkins Court, named after the Lion Public House, which sat on the opposite side of Bridge Street from it. A historical coaching inn, the Lion acted as a pub, come lodgings, come auction house, come, when necessity dictated, local courthouse, and it was into that very place William walked on April the 22nd, 1844. stood here in well first of all I'm in Belper and one of the first things you notice when you come to Belper is that there are mills or what used to be mills everywhere giant stone strong edifices there's right next to the river by the the bridge at the horseshoe weir which was one of the struts innovations really that they brought to water-powered mills harnessing and focusing the power of the water to generate the energy to turn the looms I mean now it's just one red brick mill but previously it was enormous whereas three four times the size there's another smaller mill which backs on to what would have been the home of the yeomans and there's a third mill which is where I'm stood now and I've really brought this up because as I walked into the little courtyard I noticed that stood in the corner was Mr Potato Head. Now this he may not have been a character that I intended to introduce into the into the case at this stage but um, there's a connection between Belper and Mr Potato Head now Belper is twinned with Portucket which is in Rhode Island Providence in the States and the reason the twinning took place is because Portucket is seen as the home of the American Industrial Revolution as is the Dermot Valley Mills of which Belper is a part, 
is seen by many as being the home of the world's industrial revolution. And what links the two places is a man called Samuel Slater. Or if you believe the people of Belpa, Slater the traitor. He was a young boy and he was taken on by an apprentice as an apprentice of Jedediah Strutt. And you're thinking about Mr Potato Head now, aren't you? This will come round and, and make the point clear. Of Jedediah Strutt, um, Slater was an apprentice. And he wanted to make his fortune himself. Now at the time, the plans and designs of all the great inventions that were at the heart and the fulcrum of the Industrial Revolution in Great Britain were not allowed to leave the country. So over the course of a number of years, as a young man, he wasn't even 20 at the time, Slater memorised as much as he could, then set off for America with the plans for machinery, the designs of mills, the realignment of rivers to maximise the power of the water, all stored in his head then took a ship across to America and in Portucket almost recreated brick by brick Jedediah Strutt's mill, the horseshoe in the river that created the weir, that generated the power and took the mechanical innovations of Arkwright and Strutt and in that little town in Providence started the American Revolution. Now that is what Portuk is known for. Samuel Slater and the birthplace of the American Industrial Revolution. But it is also known for Hasbro, the toy manufacturers, who invented Mr Potato Head. And as a twinning exercise, Hasbro sent the people of Belper from their friends in Portucket and Mr Potato Head. And now he stands here in the courtyard of one of the mills, which is now um, a retail space. There's some shops and cafes and antique stores. And there stands Mr Potato Head dressed in a cowboy hat saying yee-haw to the people of Belper. In one of the mills that was here in 1844. William was agitated. He was poured the quarter gin he'd ordered. His agitation was nothing new. It was such an established expression of his feelings that locals viewed it as something close to a personal characteristic. Everyone knew about his wife's dalliances with a 16-year-old apprentice wheelwright, George Ride. The pair had long since stopped attempting to hide their affections for each other and from William, and by extension, almost the entire town. I'm dying fast, whimpered the melancholic William. I'm landed with a bad woman. His cuckolding wasn't the only trouble that was beset William. Six weeks previously, he'd been in hospital in Derby, 
convalescing with heart troubles. A recuperation that, while necessary, was ultimately cut short by his fear of what his wife Sarah and George Ride were up to in his absence. The last few days had marked a particular low for the couple's relationship. The previous Saturday, William had needed some medication collected from Derby Infirmary, a chore his wife Sarah was keen to undertake for her ailing husband. So far, so good. Unfortunately, William's suspicions of his wife's real intentions for making the 18-mile round trip got the better of him, and from a vantage point on Derby Road, he lay in wait for his wife's return. As he feared, he saw not only Sarah meeting with George, but also falling into his embrace. In a rage, William ran at the couple, roaring at them in anger. The young George fled the scene, leaving the defenceless Sarah to bear the brunt of William's anger. He punched her to the ground, scolding her for abandoning her family, fritting away what money he had and making a laughing stock of him around the town. Continuing to chastise her all the short way back to Birkin's court, William built a pyre in the rear yard on which he threw a great many of Sarah's dresses, shoes and belongings. It was the first and only time to anyone's knowledge that William had displayed any violence towards Sarah. Unfortunately though, it wouldn't be the last. Of all the upheavals that the Industrial Revolution brought to the economic, social and environmental fabric of Britain, one that's overlooked is the impact on violence against women. In pre-industrial society, working, making and agriculture all took place on a micro scale. The term cottage industries exists for a reason. Mechanisation meant that work moved from home to factories, and where previously men and women would work side by side in the home, now men went out to work and women remained in the domestic setting. This erosion of the established order saw a woman's position as an equal partner in a rudimentary family enterprise diminished, where the trading of goods between individual families was replaced by centralised and managed labour. What social historians call spheres were created, whereby women occupied the domestic space while men were masters of the rest. In families such as the Yeomans, where several generations worked for the same employer, the wages of the family were paid in a lump sum to the father, he being responsible for making disbursements to the others. While it's clear this saved the factory and mill bosses a little bit of admin, it placed the man of the house in a position whereby he alone held the purse strings, He alone had control over the entire household. The Lion Hotel looked directly out onto the road and across the yeoman's home. For his position at the bar, William quickly finished a quart of gin, the equivalent of almost a litre, when he saw Sarah on the pathway in front of the house. He immediately ran out to confront her. Aggressive and clearly fuelled by drink, William verbally assaulted Sarah, cursing and mocking her. Onlookers from the adjacent properties, the smithy and the pub, 
watched as William grabbed a screaming wife by the neck, dragged her by the hair into the house, the door slamming behind them. Silence fell across Birkin Court, until a few moments later when, with the door swinging open as wildly as it closed, a tearful and terrified Sarah came running out with what belongings had escaped the fire in a bundle, and retreated for sanctuary to the home of her friend and neighbour, Sarah Watson. Safe inside her neighbour's house, Sarah Yeomans confided in a friend of the fear that she had of William of how his rages were becoming more frequent and at times violent. Although she hadn't been living in Birkin's Court for very long, as a neighbour and friend, Sarah was as aware of the raised voices as she was the relationship with George Ride. The prevailing wisdom of the day, however, tinged as it was with a keen sense of morality, said that Sarah needed to put an end to the extramarital dalliances, and beg William for forgiveness. Sarah Yeoman's considerations of that as a possible solution were brought into sharp focus by the pounding of William's fists against the front door. Afraid of where his rage would lead, his wife hid in the outside toilet, leaving Watson to placate William. Allowing him in, William continued to rail against his wife about how he tolerated her relationship with Ride, but had now had enough as she was flaunting it around the town. Ushering her out of the door, William turned to his neighbour and rather forebodingly claimed that if the affair didn't stop immediately, he'd take his wife's life and then his own. Some place names, however evocative, don't survive the test of time. One such in Belper is Cowhill Rise renamed in the 60s to the more prosaic Hill Rise. It's one of the oldest parts of town and the traditional heart of the nail-making community. 13-year-old Samuel Allen lived in one of those old nailers' cottages. The middle child, he had two older brothers and two younger sisters. Their mother died before Samuel had reached his fifth birthday. So alone, his father strived to give his children the best possible start in life. By the 1840s, the once-thriving nail-making economy of Belper was taking its final breath. Industrialisation meant mass production put pay to many families' livelihoods, but the Allens were hanging on in there. A well-made, hand-wrought nail still demanded a reasonable price, so the two older sons were learning the family trade. Samuel, however, earned money for his family in an altogether different way. He went door to door around Belper and its surrounding villages, selling his wares. There were some customers who were always pleased to see him, one of which was Sarah Yeomans. After coming out of hiding from her neighbour's outhouse the previous day, she'd returned home to William and her family. Samuel entered the small yard at the rear of Birkin's Court and knocked politely at the door. He always got a warm welcome and Sarah had always been a good customer. The first knock guarded no response. His second attempt was no more successful. 
But to his shock, before he'd had the time to make the third and final attempt, 13-year-old Samuel heard screaming coming from inside the house. Instinctively, he moved to the window looked into the parlour, and the scene that played out before him was one of horror. William was approaching a terrified Sarah, a poker in his right hand raised above his head. In a fast and powerful arch, William brought the iron rod down onto Sarah's head, laying her low to the floor in front of the stove, and continuing to bludgeon her through the screams and cries to silence. Spent, and with his wife's bloodied and broken body at his feet, William paused. Dropping the poker to the floor, he reached for the wooden framed chair from by the fire and dragged it with purpose towards the window. The back to Samuel, he slumped into it and from his pocket, took his back obscuring it from view, he retrieved something. Moments later, a pocket knife fell by his side, followed by William falling to the ground, blood pooling on the floor around him. Afraid and sobbing at the horror he'd witnessed, Samuel ran crying from the scene out into the narrow passageway just beyond the yeoman's yard, alerting neighbours, workers and anyone in the vicinity of the scene which had unfolded right before his young, innocent eyes. I'm stood here in the small courtyard which sits at the back of the row of terraces that the yeomans lived. Next to it, next to the house at the time, there was a row of thatched cottages, but now that's been replaced by a garage. Um, and there was a small smithy that was next to the row of cottages. And it's funny in a way that that's been replaced by a motor mechanics and it's just here in the corner where the water pump was which is where George Ride and Sarah Yeomans would meet for their what started off as secret rendezvous and turned out to be something that the entire town knew about. When a criminal trial takes place, regardless of the seriousness of the offence, the case is brought against the suspect not by the victim, but by the state. The state presents the charges in the name of the Crown because, while those most immediately and intimately affected are the victims of the act, the law of the land is preeminent, and the crime has been committed in contravention of those laws. An act in contravention of the laws of the land are, therefore, an act perpetrated against the Crown. Trials are therefore presented as Regina versus Smith, for example, the monarch, the Crown versus Mr Smith. For the murder of Sarah Yeoman, there was no one alive against whom the Crown could lay a charge. William was dead, and because of that, there could be no apportion of criminal responsibility. 
the only area in which the facts of Sarah's murder could be ascertained were the coroner's court. A coroner's court is neither a criminal nor a civil in nature. A coronial inquest is an inquiry which delivers findings. Coroners are concerned with ascertaining fact, not determining guilt and delivering punishment. That Sarah was dead was a known fact. That William was dead was a known fact. How these deaths occurred needed to be legally established. So while no apportion of criminal guilt would be found by the coroner's inquest, its work would establish an official narrative of events which led up to the deaths and also codify the circumstances that caused them. Since 1927, coroner's juries have rarely been used in England. Under the Coroner's Act of 1988, a jury is only required to be convened in cases where the death occurred in prison, police custody, or in circumstances which may affect public health or safety. The coroner can actually choose to convene a jury at any investigation, but in practice this is extremely rare. Back in 1844, juries were more common particularly when an individual's death hadn't been part of an illness or natural causes. Under the stewardship of respected local coroner Henry Mosley, 12 men and women were called a mere 48 hours on from the killing to the Lion Hotel, the public house across the road from the yeoman's home, the public house where William would drink and lament his life and that he was, in his own words, landed with a bad woman. The first witness to be called was Hannah Godber, a neighbour of the couple, tellingly describing their relationship as neighbourly but not friendly. She told the inquest that she'd not only been aware of the difficulties the pair were having in their marriage, but also the cause, the reciprocated romantic attentions towards Sarah of a certain George Ride. Rehearsing conversations he'd had with William the days before the tragedy, Hannah told of how he was aware of the relationship, as it was the reason for his early self-discharge from hospital. Also, she told him that he'd confronted Sarah and George during their brief assignation on her journey back from Derby with his medicine. Furthermore, he admitted to Hannah revenge for his wife's scandalous behaviour. He'd recently burnt some of her clothes in anger. In a chilling portent of what was to come, Hannah confirmed to the inquest in the past weeks she'd witnessed several occasions of William being firm-handed, to use her words, towards his wife. Only the day before the killings, William had grabbed her by her throat and forced her indoors. After a few moments, and something of an explosive commotion, Sarah ran from the house to another of her neighbours, Sarah Watson. Sarah Watson then took the stand and recounted her deceased friends. She defined her relationship with the Yeomans as a friendship, concern for her safety. William's demands his wife return home and the threat that he'd tolerated his wife adultery for too long and he was prepared to kill her before taking his own life. The next witness was Jane Godber, Hannah's daughter. She spoke of the recent fights emanating from the Yeomans' home and how she and her mother 
had been forced to listen to these through the dividing walls. On the day of the killings, she said how she heard screaming and shouting, recognised the familiar sound of blows being exchanged, the crashing of furniture, the number of desperate and piercing screams, and then silence. A silence only broken minutes later by the attempts of neighbours and passers-by to force entry into the yeoman's home. It was then the turn of the only living eyewitness to the actual events, 13-year-old Samuel Allen, to tell of the horrors that he'd seen. Nervous but composed, he was accompanied to the inquest by his father and older brothers. A boy whose cheerful nature and outgoing disposition had served him so well when it came to selling buttons and ribbons, he was still incredibly shocked at what he'd seen, and though hesitant and withdrawn, he recounted in detail what he'd witnessed. Describing William as rough and fierce, Sarah as down and terrified, to a silent assembly of jury and onlookers, he recounted Sarah's murder at the hands of William and the slow bleeding to death of William by his own hand. There then followed two witnesses, each providing testimony of William's spoken intentions to kill both Sarah and himself. William Sims, the village blacksmith, had a smithy in the yard adjacent to Burskin Court, explaining that in the 20 years he'd known his namesake, he'd never known a more calm and considered individual. However, after he'd learnt of his wife's adulterous affair, his behaviour had changed dramatically, and whenever he met him, he seemed always to be agitated and angry. In the blacksmith's presence, William threatened to kill his wife and himself if she didn't end the affair. So worried was he that he had shared his concerns with the yeoman's eldest son and suggested that he keep an eye on his father to try and ensure he did nothing foolish. The second witness to William's intentions was Francis Garrett, a local joiner who'd also known William for a number of years. On the morning of the deaths, after leaving the Lion Hotel, William visited the witness's shop. He produced two knives, one a carving knife, the other a pocket knife, with which he would use to kill himself later in the day. William asked Francis if he could sharpen them on the oilstone in the joiner's shop, saying he wanted to cut his corns. For clarity, the coins he was referring to weren't on the cob variety, but rather calluses, thick and tender areas of layered skin on his feet, caused by friction from his shoes. Not necessarily noting anything unusual about his visitor's demeanour, it was noted that William left the shop immediately once the knives were sharpened, when normally he'd have stayed to talk. The final witness, called before the inquest on its first day of sitting, was Dr Thomas Lomas, who had been called to the scene within minutes of the killing. Finding William lying on his back in a position consistent with Samuel Allen's evidence, his throat was cut, about two inches below his left ear and across his neck, 
almost across to his right ear. The wounds so deep and long that the vertebrae of his neck were exposed. The pocket knife lay on the floor beside him. Although still alive when the doctor arrived, William died within minutes, no amount of effort unable to stem the bleeding. Sarah, despite her wounds, was in a slightly better state. Found lying on her front, her hands over her face with her elbows tucked in, the position suggesting she'd been attempting to protect her head. There were three deep fractures to her skull, as well as several other serious head wounds. The bloody poker close to her body and covered in blood and hair. The final brutal detail given was that Sarah had suffered a single broken was that Sarah had suffered a single broken finger, an injury indicative of an attempt to defend herself, the doctor believed. Still alive, Sarah was quickly transported to the cottage hospital about half a mile away on the other side of the river only to lose a battle for life the following day, a post-mortem confirming their death was due to serious head injuries. Despite not having been called as a witness to give formal evidence at the inquest, the coroner summoned, seemingly as much to satisfy his own and the jury's moral outrage, George Ride. Castigating the young man for his immoral and profligate conduct, the coroner made it clear to Ride that he believed his behaviour reprehensible and that had been the most significant contributory factor to the deaths that were being investigated. With the words of the coroner ringing in his ears and the accusatory glares of the jury piercing into his back, George left. Resuming the hearing, the following day, Hannah Yeomans, the ten-year-old daughter of the deceased couple, was the first to be called to give evidence. Clearly distressed, the twelve-year-old spoke in a clear and firm voice. She told the court that in the recent past she had come to realise that her parents were unhappy, and despite a young age, she was aware of her mother's relationship with George and the strain it was placing on the family. Hannah worked at Strutt's Mill, and when she left her work at six on the morning of the killings, her father was pacing up and down in the street outside the house. As she passed him, he nodded farewell to his daughter, but didn't speak. Hannah didn't go home for breakfast, as was her usual arrangement, with Sarah turning up unexpectedly, delivering it to her at work. As usual though, Hannah went home for lunch, arriving at Biskin's court just after midday. Sitting with her parents and a younger sister and older brother, the family ate in heavy silence. That was until her mother rose, breezily stating that she was going to collect water from the pump in the yard. Quietly and calmly, William implored her not to, noting that George Ride was in the yard and that he'd rather she didn't. Sarah returned to her seat. Returning to the mill once the meal was finished, that would be the last time that 12-year-old Hannah would share a family meal. John Yeomans, the eldest of the children, was 21. Disabled in a factory injury, he was the next witness to be called to give evidence. Unable to work, he'd lived with his parents all of his life. On the day of the killings, 
he confirmed his mother leaving the house to take Hannah a breakfast at the mill. As she left the house, John recalled her father's impotent rage towards Sarah, pointing at what he described as his wasting body. He explained that he was so weak he wouldn't be able to work for much longer due to his failing health. With the door shutting behind Sarah as she left, William took two empty vials from a drawer and told John that he was going to the chemist to fill each with laudanum. Within the hour, William had returned empty-handed, the chemist out of stock. Another neighbour, Alexander Saunders, recounted to the jury that at around 11 o'clock on the morning of the killings, he'd spoken to the preoccupied William who, without prompting, complained that a few minutes earlier, George Ryde and a companion had passed by his house, shouting abuse and ridiculing him. In a state of confusion and anger, William told Sanders that he'd considered taking himself off to nearby Nottingham to visit his brother for a few days, but that he was too ill to make the journey. Next on the stand was woodturner Charles Seal, who was chairman of the Druids Club. A friendly society, Druids clubs and similar organisations were prevalent in the 19th century, particularly in Britain, as a means for individuals to pool their resources and provide mutual support. Members would typically make regular contributions or payments, or payments often on a weekly basis, which would go into a collective fund. When a member faced hardship or couldn't work, they could claim financial benefits from this fund to help sustain themselves and their families during these periods. Though William had continued to work after leaving hospital, he could only undertake light duties. His hours cut significantly over the course of the week. This meant he wasn't receiving his full wage, which the club was supplementing. Mr Seal had called to see William a few days before the killings, to pay his sickness benefit. As he collected it, William informed Seal of his concern that, as he was rumoured to have been beating his wife, that his payments had stopped, although he'd insisted that he had only hit her once, and with an umbrella. Attempting to reassure him that this was not so, Seal explained that he'd continue to receive his payments from the club. His words, however, offered very little balm to William, though with Seal considering him to be distressed and of unsound mind. The last witness to be called was William Williamson, a long-standing friend of the deceased couple, who explained that he'd been very concerned at the difficulties he knew they'd both been experiencing. Calling at 12.45, he was the final visitor for the house and the last person to see the couple alive and to talk to them. He stayed for approximately 20 minutes, in the hope that there was something he could do to help. During the period of his visit, William seemed restless and continually paced the room. On one occasion, the pacing stopped abruptly and he lay down on the sofa. Sarah approached, but before she could speak, he dismissed her, waving her away. I'll hear no more of it. I'm at peace with you, or at least I will be. Rising from the chair, he grabbed hold of his thigh and pleaded to the pair, I'm wasting to nothing. I must be gone soon. 
As William left, Yeomans took him to one side and whispered to his friend, I'll never be any better. Never. Just 30 minutes later, William would be dead and Sarah fatally wounded. The jury retired and after only a short time returned with their decision. As far as they were concerned, William had killed his wife and himself while labouring under a fit of temporary insanity. While agreeing with the somewhat unchallengeable sequence of events, Coroner Henry Mosley wasn't ready to accept the belief that William was of unfit mind when he killed Sarah. As far as he was concerned, no proof of his insanity had been provided other than the odd speculative diagnosis of an ill-qualified but well-meaning amateur. The basis of his belief was the level of premeditation involved in the incident, from the near incessant threats of suicide to the knife sharpening and the attempt to purchase the naturally derived opioid laudanum. Whatever the truth of the matter, it's clear William had known of his wife's affair with George Ride for quite some time, and that it was a cause of much emotional turmoil in the home. His physical health was deteriorating, and he appeared convinced that he was near to death. While these facts are inarguable, a sense comes through in the contemporary reporting that in a way, Sarah had brought the whole tragic affair on herself. Descriptions of her as an immoral woman appear a number of times, as though that in itself was justification for William's actions. Nobody could disagree that the very public nature of Sarah's affair with George Ride had more than a sniff of insensitivity about it. But what stands at the centre of the case is a man who kills his wife because she no longer wants him. Divorce may not have been a realistic option for them at the time, but in similar circumstances, contemporary couples came to arrangements that, on the whole, didn't leave both of them dead. I'm reminded of the two modern cases of intimate partner homicide we've looked at recently, the killings of Tanya Moore and Rachel Slack. In both of those cases, each woman was murdered by a man who was unwilling to let them enjoy a romantic life, independent of them. In the case of Rachel, her ex-partner and father of her son Auden had been receiving treatment for depression and had received a variety of sometimes contradictory diagnoses for mental ill health. The inquest which followed the deaths of Rachel, their 18-year-old son Auden and Andrew himself focused in large part on the role of the police and the health services and the part they played in failing to protect the young mother and toddler. While great emphasis was placed on Andrew's mental health issues, it was rightly never suggested that it was inevitable that he would go on to kill. As we learnt in that episode, the wealth of evidence around the subject tells that those suffering from most types of mental illnesses are less likely than the general population to cause harm to others, let alone kill them. It's interesting, I think, to consider the discussions that went on between the jury and the coroner, Henry Mosley. 
The panel of twelve, who they themselves, it's safe to say, could never envisage committing such a beastly act as William did, say his actions were those of a madman, someone detached and derailed from human civility. Mosley, though, took a differing view. With a level of insight that even 150 years later would be seen as progressive, he understood that all sorts of people are capable of wicked acts, that no matter the perceived provocation, there's no justification for the violence inflicted by William on Sarah. He understood that the anger and brutality are features of a human condition, and to simply dismiss them as being the actions of a lunatic only excuse us from acknowledging that evil exists and that those who commit such things are transgressing our established norms. Mosley understood that with each blow from the iron poker that William brought thundering down on defenceless Sarah, he wasn't displaying a symptom of a mental illness, but defiling the societal order. He was committing a crime against the rules of the state as much as against his wife, and that if a murder trial could take place, it would have been brought in the name of the Crown on behalf of Sarah. Sarah wasn't killed by a madman or someone of unsound mind, as the jury suggested. She was killed by a vicious and vindictive husband who, in doing so, broke one of the most sacred laws. For doing that, Mosley contested, William should have been held accountable, the state standing with Sarah against a killer. For 1844, that's a pretty enlightened position, I think. side of the terrace and there there is you can walk along Chevron View and this takes you out onto Bridge Street which is the main through road through Belper and literally straight in front of you is the Lion Hotel um, now it's gone through lots of iterations but the main structure of the building that would have been here in 1844 you can still see um, at the time it was mainly a coach house because Bridge Street that, that I'm stood on was the main coach route from Sheffield to Derby so as well as the hundreds and into the thousands of people who worked in the mills and the industry this was a, a through route for people passing between the two cities and this is a place where people would stop. Um, I think at the time, which was not long before the trains came to Belpa, there was something like 14 coaches a day. It's tall and it's been rendered white, which from, although there's obviously no photographs, but from sketches of the day, it's probably quite similar. It's probably a lot cleaner. But you can still see at the front the arched, what would have been the gated entrance. And that's the entrance to the pub. 
and it's inside there where George sat lamenting his wife's wandering eye and you can if the bar is in the same place and I think it probably is because the rooms that are upstairs now are probably the same rooms because there were about 11 rooms back in the 1840s and now there's maybe a couple less but I think the bits that have been extended over time are the red brick bits at the back and there are function rooms now and it just seems strange that in this he wants a distance of about 30 meters from the back parlor of their home which is on the as you look at the four terraces on the left hand side the extreme left hand side and there's the paved front and this was the front where George grabbed Sarah and dragged her into the house all the way through across the road and into the pub or hotel as it was and it was where George sat but ultimately where the inquest was just 48 hours after their death took place in this 30 meters I've come back round to the little courtyard at the rear of the houses and I remember the first time that I came here um, there's a little plaque on the gate uh, and it's the gate of number I think it's 57 but it's the from the back it's the second house on the left and the little plaque says in 1852 on this spot nothing happened now the first time I saw this I'd done quite a lot of reading and research and I spotted this and I had a mild panic because I I thought to myself hang on a minute 1852 is far too close to 1844 for the two things not to be related have I got all of this entirely wrong and have I misread every single newspaper and every single piece of documentation on this case and somehow decided in my mind it was it took place in 1844 so I gave my head a scratch and hot-footed round to the library the um, local study center and but no it is 1844 so I came back and then I had a crisis of confidence and wondered whether I'd just misread the plaque and when I came back here the second time that day I was stood at the back door checking on the plaque and a rattle came 
from behind the gate and a lady stepped out who lives in the house um, and it was a bit odd because I was I was lurking in a small little courtyard at the back of her house uh, but she was very nice and I asked her what the relevance of the plaque was and she explained that um, she'd bought it in a gift shop in Newquay as a bit of a joke because she lived in an old house and there are loads of kind of historically significant buildings around Belper and she put it on the front of the house but then when there were local history days or some sort of festivals on or because there's loads of fairs and things and take place in Belper she'd have people come to the front of the house and gawp at the front of the house and be absolutely bamboozled by it and I think over time she just got a bit sick of people gawping in through the windows but she liked it because it it's a funny thing and she stuck it on the gate at the back and it just does go to show how you can interpret elements of stories when you find a little piece of evidence and concoct your own little theories and your own little narratives around things when really they can be utterly inconsequential and that little plaque really did for a good little while have me concerned that I'd got everything entirely wrong and I'd even got the location of the murder wrong because it isn't her house isn't the house where it took place it's a house two doors down but it was this little courtyard at the back of the of the row where the water pump was that George and Sarah first met at and had their at least to begin with secret assignations and it is through the little gate on the end on the right hand side that Samuel laden with his ribbons and his bows and his buttons pushed the gate open and knocked on the door and here in the screens from inside went to the window One thing that is, I mean, I, when I took one of my many trips to the local study library um, and doing research was trying to find out what happened to the yeoman's children. That I think in the case of the children they moved in with who I think was the Analdis sister who lived I think six or seven doors along there's no record of George Ride being in Belper almost well certainly from 1845 the year after what occurred he's nowhere to be seen and you do wonder whether he was almost run out of town
but I think it's worth recognising that George was 16 and Sarah for all of her innocence when it comes to her actual murder was 48 years old and in those circumstances without wishing to turn this into a an exercise in victim blaming she had huge responsibility for drawing George into this no guilt in what happened to her that's certainly not the case but that George at such a young age had been drawn into this relationship and it resulted in the death of two people one murder and one suicide and that he had the scorn of a whole town poured upon him and effectively is cast out seems on reflection now to be maybe looking at it with modern eyes an element of the story that I think is probably all too easily overlooked